we've had cancer in my family before, just not breast cancer. So, and of course, telling my parents, they're like, oh my gosh, my youngest daughter has cancer. Who would have imagined that? But I'm lucky enough to have my stepmother, who's an oncology nurse. So she kind of was able to, dad was panicking, was able to, I sent them the pathology report and she was able to go, okay, this is probably what the plan is. She's friends with oncologists. You know, that sort of thing was very helpful, but just having them all around and supporting me was just like the most important thing that I needed in that moment. Cause I didn't know what the treatment was going to be. I didn't know what the road was going to look like. I just knew that it, my life had changed. Life is complicated, but getting healthy doesn't need to be. And hello, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Inland Medical Center's Health Matters. This is a monthly podcast that gets real about wellness, and we get to check in on ourselves. I'm Susie Lowry-Hall, and I'll be your host. We're going to have some candid conversations on health topics that matter most to you and our loved ones and our family, and the goal is to empower, inspire, and make a difference. We're going to be joined with Inlow experts with real insight and real stories from people just like you and me. And we're going to learn easy steps that we can take to start down the road to wellness. No one knows your breasts like you do, right? And that can save your life. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women in the United States, excluding skin cancer. But both men and women are at risk. Every year, more than 250,000 cases of breast cancer are diagnosed in women and about 2,300 in men, according to the CDC. Getting a breast cancer diagnosis is overwhelming, life-changing, and straight-up scary. You get the news and then what? Today on Health Matters, we're going to talk just about this and more in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I'm joined with Auburn Menifee. She's a business owner and a breast cancer survivor, and she's going to share her story. She'll tell us what it was like to get her diagnosis, how it affected her life, the treatment she received, and how she's doing. Our Inlow expert in the studio is Dr. Nicole Whitlatch. She's a hematologist oncologist at Inlow Comprehensive Breast Care. Let's get started. Thank you both for being here today. I would just love to have you introduce yourself. So I'll go ahead and start with you, Auburn. Tell us a little bit about you. Well, my name's Auburn. I am a Chico local breast cancer survivor, local therapist in the community. Great. Dr. Whitlatch. I'm Nicole Whitlatch. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I specialized in uh, breast cancer. Um, I'm from Massachusetts, so not local, but I have been here now about 11 years, moved here with my family back in 2010. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love this town too. Mm-hmm. I'm also a transplant doctor. With <laughs> and this is like the best time of year too, where it's getting a little cooler. The colors are starting to come. I'm like, okay, I love Chico again. <laughs> <laughs> so we are here today to talk about breast cancer. And I'd love for you, Auburn, to tell us what that means to you. For me personally, it means life-changing. That's the first word that comes to my mind in the sense of, I didn't know a lot about it before. I was personally diagnosed. I had other cancers in my family, but never breast cancer. So it was something that I never imagined would be something that I'd personally deal with, especially at, you know, in my twenties. So kind of like a catalyst for me in learning more about breast cancer and getting more involved with that community and just kind of building my resilience. Kind of what I think of. Well, so I didn't realize how young you were. Mm -hmm. I think I, I'm trying to think I was 28 when I was diagnosed. So very young, not something you would genuinely expect, but, you know, it comes with its own kind of hurdles and challenges, but in a way, I'm kind of glad that I had it when I was younger because 
my body's very strong. You know, I'm mentally really strong. I have a really strong support system around me. Not saying that you don't have that when you're older, but it just felt a little bit more resilient through all the treatment. When and how was your breast cancer found? If you, it sounds like you didn't have a, a lot of information about it prior, but mm-hmm. how did you stumble upon or get checked for that? I always was just performing self exams. I was really diligent about that. I used to do self exams like probably at least once a week, just kind of like as a routine in the shower or maybe before I went to bed, just kind of like a few minutes and then go to sleep. And there was a period of time where there was kind of a break in the time that I was doing self exams because the campfire happened. I had family staying Mm. with me. I'm from paradise. You know, it was a very stressful time. And then when I kind of got back into my routine a little bit, a couple of months later, I was like, oh, I found something. It felt a little different. It kind of was similar to like kind of the dense tissue that I already had, but it it definitely felt different. And so I made an appointment with my OBGYN because that's what I was told to do. But I really am grateful for all the information about like self-exams, what to look for, because I kind of was just always doing that. And so I definitely think if I wasn't doing that, I would have had a longer road or not as a good of a prognosis. So I'm really glad that I found it. So interesting. So you knew to do self-exams. Do you recall like when you learned that as a younger person? Like, do you, you know what I mean? I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, my mom was always really body positive. So she was always like, make sure you're checking in with your body and always checking moles and things like that, which I'm really grateful for my mom. Thanks mom. (laughs) But then just kind of, there's so much information about self-exams and breast cancer awareness in that sense. Like that's the realm of breast cancer that I've always known is like, do what you can, you can prevent things or you can save your own life if you just check yourself at least once a month. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been pretty diligent because it's such an easy thing to incorporate into my routine. So, and I did, and I, I do believe that it saved my life. Dr. Whitlatch, a little bit about breast exams. What does that entail? What does that mean? For an individual meeting self-breast exams? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Auburn has wisely kind of stated what's recommended really is just to get to know your own body and to know your own tissue. It can be hard, I think, especially with younger women like Auburn who have very dense tissue to really appreciate changes. And I think the more a woman understands and knows her own body, that can really be of help. So it's just like Auburn said, we typically recommend once a month around the same time. It can be difficult certain times of the month, like around a woman's menstrual cycle, the breast tissue can change and that can be frightening, I think sometimes. So trying to do it, you know, like maybe right after a cycle or the same time each month is key so that you know what's your norm, basically. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of a tagline in the breast cancer community, feel it on the first. I love that, you know, just to remind people, hey, if you're going to do it, just maybe on the first, do a self-exam once a month, you know, obviously around those times, if that is during your menstrual cycle, but it's just a nice reminder. I've never heard that. Yeah. I I think I've heard so much more because I'm part of all these breast cancer communities online and kind of networking with other people and outreach. And, and so that's like a big one in the breast cancer community is feel it on the first. I I love that. (laughs) Smart. I like that too. (laughs) Well, what was it like to get the news? Oh, I mean, shocking, of course. It's interesting because when I had my mammogram and then they had me do an ultrasound to get some different images, there was kind of this feeling I had of like, I don't, I think this is, I don't think this is good. You know, I coached myself of like, don't go to the worst case scenario, but just talking with the doctors, I was like, this is different than just a abnormal spot 
you know? And so I think I, my, I was mentally prepping myself for that moment. And then when she, my OBGYN did tell me my husband was with me, thank goodness. Also shout out to my husband for being amazing through all this. <laughs> it was just shocking. I, I think I kept telling him like, what the heck? A lot of like swear words in the car. <laughs> yeah. And just kind of not knowing. I know after probably three or four hours, this strange kind of determination settled over me of like, okay, well, we know what it is. Now let's figure out how to get rid of it. You know, that's really my only choice. I had a choice to just like panic or kind of be like, okay, what's our plan? Let's figure this out. So, and I chose that. (laughs) It's incredible. Yeah. In situations like that, I always kind of ask myself, like, do I want to sit here and really like suffer maybe for a little bit, but then I need to move on and do something. So what did you do with your determination? So you made a decision, mm-hmm. which I would say was rather quick. I think four hours and then you decided it's pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing and pretty incredible. Yeah. So what did you make? What was that? What was that decision? It was just that I was going to try my hardest to survive it and get through it. My OBGYN provided some hopeful um, information just based on the staging that was just based on the pathology report. So saying, you know, you caught it early, you know, you'll get more information from the oncology team when you talk to them. but I mean, the first thing I did was, you know, after it kind of settled over me was call my friends, call my family and just be like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to need from you guys yet, but I know I'm going to need something from you. So I'm just telling you right now and just having that support was just everything that I needed. I really like that you involved your friends and your family, your support system Mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot of fear that you're afraid to tell your family because you're afraid if you tell them, then, you know, maybe you get treated differently in a way that isn't helpful or supportive, but in this case, it sounds like it was really rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, my, like my, I said, my family, we've had cancer in my family before, just not breast cancer. So, and and of course telling my parents, they're like, oh my gosh, my youngest daughter has cancer. Who would have imagined that? But I'm lucky enough to have my stepmother who's an oncology nurse, you know, and my dad was panicking, was able to, I sent them the pathology report and she was able to go, okay, this is probably what the plan is. She's friends with oncologists. You know, that sort of thing was very helpful, Yeah, but just having them all around. And it's just like the most important thing that I needed in that moment. Cause the, I didn't know what the treatment was going to be. I didn't know what the road was going to look like. I just knew that it, my life had changed. Can you just take us back? So what exactly is breast cancer or cancer in general? So, you know, breast cancer essentially is when, an abnormal cell develops in the breast and then it, it clones itself. So there's clonal growth, meaning one type of abnormal cell grows over and over and over into a tumor or a mass within the breast tissue. And that's really the definition of cancer is, you know, abnormal cells that go unchecked. Normally the body will, you know, degrade, or it has this kind of checkpoint system that gets rid of mutated or abnormal cells. And cancer is allowed to develop when that checkpoint system is evaded, essentially. And so that's how all tumors really develop. But breast cancer develops in the female breast tissue. And there's different histologic types and different subtypes, but that's kind of the basic answer. <laughs> so breast cancer is extremely common. hmm Is there, what's the reasoning behind that? Well, I think, you know, what we know, I was putting together a talk for a grand rounds uh, coming up for breast cancer awareness month, looking through the statistics, it is the most common cancer seen in women across the world. So in the United States, 280,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer each year. And it's the second leading cause of cancer death 
lung cancer being the first. But the good news in all of that is the mortality rates from breast cancer are going down all the time. And I think that's due to both early detection and also due to good therapies. So that, you know, when breast cancer is caught early and treated early, most people will do very well and will have long-term survival. And that's probably what I love a lot about my job is that even though it's such a terrible thing for, for women to go through, there's usually a positive outcome at the end, meaning that, you know, my patients are going to be okay a lot of the time. That's not always the case, you know, unfortunately, but like Auburn, I mean, she's just incredible. She's just <laughs> a strong woman and she fought really hard. And, and I think that, you know, I, I think she'd agree she's thriving now. I mean, she's just a beautiful young woman, uh, just very accomplished. And Well, thank you. I will say when, you know, in going through treatment with you, it, it felt like a puzzle that you were solving because of the type of cancer that I had. You were like, okay, we know what we're dealing with. And it, I just, it felt, I felt like I could trust you really easily because all of those really specified therapies, you knew like this is the advance, advancement in the medicine that we have. And like, I'm matching these things to these different parts of your cancer. So I felt like we were kind of attacking it and like all the way around it, not just like, we're going to try something and see if it works. And so even going through treatment, that really scary time, I was like, you know, it really seems like we're doing everything within our power to do this. And I felt very grateful that we had the advancements in medicine that we did, um, you know, and all of that and being able to do the genetic testing and all of that. Whereas, you know, I don't know how long ago those things didn't exist, but I was grateful for that. Yeah. What would be the benefits to having her treatment be so specific? You got diagnosed and then you, we keep talking about treatment. Can we dive into that? Yeah. Do you want me to share like what my treatment was? Yeah. Or? So I don't, again, it sounds like the cancer has plays a factor. So it sounds like you had a specific cancer that mm -hmm. determined the diagnosis. So maybe we can just explain that a little bit. Yeah. My initial staging, I think was like stage one. And then based on the size, I got staged up one. So stage two, but just because of the size. And then I was diagnosed with estrogen and progesterone positive. So it feeds off the cancer. Also, Nicole, you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing your job right now. <laughs> and then HER2 positive, which is a type of protein. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. <laughs> She's shaking her head. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, okay. She's affirming <laughs> Auburn's. <laughs> not the doctor. Dr. Whitlatch is a very good teacher. Look at it. That's good. <laughs> and we kind of had a joke that I was the person who like to ease my anxiety, I do really well if I have like research articles and like all the latest news. So I'd always like come in and be like, she'd mention something and I'm like, oh, you mean this trial? And she's like, okay, you already read it. <laughs> so, so the treatment we did was targeting those things. So I did went through chemotherapy for like four months and then did lumpectomy. That was, I had a choice between getting a mastectomy or a lumpectomy. And what we found out or what I learned from my wonderful surgeon is that, you know, the outcomes from, you know, my staging and all of that was about the same and quality of life and kind of factoring in all those choices. I initially was like, just get rid of them. But then she talked me off a ledge a little bit and gave me more ideas of what the statistics were, which I responded really well to, and then did radiation and then continued with, is it called immunotherapy? So it's the HER2 targeted therapy. Mm -hmm. So Herceptin. Yeah. And that was still through, I would still go through to like the infusion center, but it wasn't, you know, sometimes we'd call it like chemo light. It didn't make me lose my hair or, you know, make me feel really sick. Like the first set of chemo I did, it was really manageable. I went back to work while I was doing it. 
it had some side effects like fatigue and things like that, but I did that for the remaining of the year. Right. A full year. Yeah. And then I continue, I'm continuing on with like hormone blocking therapy because my cancer was fed by hormones. So I don't want to give it any food if there's anything left in there. So how'd I do? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have anything to add? Sure. I mean, I think what Auburn talked about quite eloquently was that, you know, there are different subtypes of breast cancer and we test all breast cancers for three proteins or what we call receptors in the tissue. Two of those are your hormones, essentially estrogen and progesterone receptor. And then the third protein is a growth protein called HER2, which is human epidermal receptor growth factor. And so the HER2 protein is found on breast cells and breast cancer about one quarter of all breast cancers will be what we call HER2 positive. And so Auburn had a subtype of breast cancer we refer to as triple positive in that it's estrogen and progesterone and HER2 positive. And basically, you know, just to break it down a little more, hormone positive breast cancer is the majority of what I see in clinical practice. So probably 60, 70% of all breast cancers are hormone positive. About a quarter are also HER2 positive, like Auburn's. And then the third subtype of breast cancer is triple negative, meaning it's estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 negative. And that's about 20% of all breast cancers. So that, that's the first step that we always look at when we have individual breast cancers. What type is it? Because then that determines how we treat the cancer, how we approach it, and what therapeutic options are available. So for Auburn's particular type of breast cancer being HER2 positive, prior to the advent of HER2-directed treatments, meaning these antibodies um, called Herceptin and Perjata are the ones most commonly used in a curative setting, this type of breast cancer was really had a poor prognosis, was very aggressive. It is an aggressive cancer. But on the flip side, now people with HER2-positive breast cancer are doing great, even in the metastatic setting we think that we're probably going to eventually be able to cure this disease because there are so many HER2 targeted treatments in the metastatic setting that are also being researched and pulled up into the curative setting. So it is an exciting era, you know, for breast cancer and for HER2 positive breast cancer in particular. In Auburn's case, you know, how we approach her cancer and her stage of cancer is when you have a stage two HER2 positive breast cancer, often the treatment approach is you give chemotherapy with the HER2 targeted treatments, the Herceptin and Perjata up front, then proceed to surgery to remove the cancer. And then you proceed with further surgery out back or what we call adjuvant or post-operative therapy to continue that treatment out to a full year and prevent it from coming back anywhere in the body. And then we did try, and there was a newer, I don't know if it's called drug therapy, but it was like an oral pill that had been approved for my type of cancer after all of that. And I just didn't tolerate it very well. And I just, you know, I felt really supported by Dr. Whitlatch about, you know, let's try it. And if it doesn't work, it's okay if it doesn't work. You know, it kind of, I felt like I was at the end of my treatment road too. I was pretty exhausted at that point. It'd been like a year. And so I was like, I'm going to give it a try. And I just, it did not work well for me, but I didn't feel at all like any sort of anxiety or panic deciding not to do it. So that felt really good because it felt like we had, again, attacked it from so many different sides that I was like, I've already done so much and I feel good about the outcome of all those treatments. I feel like I'm so grateful that the treatments worked well for me and I had a good response to that. And I was able to tolerate most of the treatment pretty well too, that 
at the end of the road, I was like, okay, no, I can't do this last one. But again, so grateful that there's so many different options for, you know, the type of cancer that I have, you know, it can seem kind of scary if you read information about her two cancers that are, they sound really aggressive and scary and big. And then you go, oh, wait, but we have all these really wonderful medicines and drugs to fight that. And it really worked well for me. Auburn, did you have to go outside of Chico to get any of your treatment or is was all of your diagnosis local here? Everything was local and it was absolutely wonderful. I would say, you know, in listening to Nicole describe it all. And when I was first diagnosed, I actually met with the breast surgeon, but just meeting at the breast care center. And like the second you walk in, you just feel like they're there to receive you and they're there to explain everything and go over, you know, the type of cancer they have, the staging, what your options are and never rushing, never just letting you decide and giving you all the information or all the information you'd like, you know, if you don't want some of it, it's okay. And it just never felt, I, I, it's a very scary time in your life and they do such a good job of making sure you're taken care of and you have everything that you need. And they have a nurse navigator there to help you navigate that as well and support, you know, your family if you need it. It just, the second you walk in, you're like, I'm going to be okay with these people. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Dr. Whitlatch, did you want to say anything about that? (laughs) Just thank you, Auburn. That's wonderful to hear. I think, you know, we work as a team, which is really nice. We have, you know, the name of our facility is Enlo Comprehensive Breast Care in that we've put together this comprehensive team of, you know, all the physicians that are required to manage and and support our patients, you know, through this this journey that they face. So we have a dedicated uh, breast surgeon who previously was uh, Dr. Karen Ching, who was wonderful and was Auburn surgeon. She then recruited Dr. Pai, who's our current fellowship trained breast surgeon, also wonderful. And I know Auburn's had the opportunity to have some surgical follow-up visits with her, but she's just a great partner. And what's been really wonderful is since I've been focused on just breast cancer over these last six years, we've developed this multidisciplinary breast cancer tumor board that occurs uh, most Tuesdays of the month where we try to present all of our new patients and we have the breast surgeon present. Now we've been doing it all by Zoom ever since COVID. Hopefully we'll get back to in-person, but it's still quite an excellent format where we all come together. So it's medical oncology like myself and then some of the other medical oncologists in our practice will join our surgeon. We have our pathologists who review the breast biopsies and go through the receptor staining, for example, that we just discussed. And then we have our breast radiologists who are going through mammograms and MRIs of all of our patients to really show us where the tumor is, help us do or complete what we call clinical staging. Clinical staging is trying to stage the tumor before you have had surgery. And that's important in some types of breast cancer, like the HER2 positive, where we're treating it up front, meaning prior to surgery based on clinical staging. It's been a great team approach, and I think it really improves patient care when you can provide that you know, group aspect and everyone's weighing in and a part of the treatment plan. I don't want to forget our radiation oncologists as well, who are also part of that. And their treatment typically is after surgery. They deliver radiation when appropriate. And when you meet with any provider, whether it's like an infusion nurse or, you know, meeting with Dr. Whitlatch, you get the sense that it's, you're not just meeting with them, that you, it's this whole group of people that have met about your specific type of cancer. It just feels a little bit more I don't know, supported or that it's not just one person's opinion on what you should be doing. You feel very well taken care of and all your options and quality of life really considered. 
one of the things that I'm still honestly accepting about your diagnosis is how young you are. Mm. But I, my question is about family history. I feel like family history is one of those telltale prevention. And it sounds like your family had some cancer mm-hmm. in it. And so I suppose my question to you, Dr. Whitletch, is, is there a connection between breast cancer and other cancers? Is breast cancer a predecessor to only breast cancer? Well, so maybe I'll step back and kind of address your first question is, you know, Auburn's age. It is uncommon, right, to have breast cancer at a young age. It is. We know, you know, I think we all all are familiar with that number. One in eight women will develop breast cancer, which translates to a 12% lifetime incidence for all women of breast cancer. And that lifetime incidence increases with age. So it's most common to be diagnosed with breast cancer when a woman is postmenopausal, you know, typically 60s, 70s. That's the most common thing I see in my practice. Younger women, when they develop breast cancer, as a clinician, we need to think about, okay, is there some inherited or what we call genetic predisposition in this individual that led them to develop breast cancer? Surprisingly, we only find that about six at most 10% of the time. We're learning more and more about genetics of cancer in general. We do have a genetics counselor now as part of our cancer center. And so we refer all young patients with breast cancer to have what we call gene panel testing. Essentially it's a blood test to ascertain if they have any of the known pathogenic mutations that lead to early development of breast cancer. So that's one thing that we always do for any younger woman and young in breast cancer really is under 50 is, is young. And so when we see that, that's an automatic referral for genetic testing and workup. Outside of those known pathogenic mutations to address your second question, family history does play a role in risk. So even if a woman undergoes gene panel testing and does not have one of these known mutations that results in in breast cancer, having a family history of, you know, two or more close relatives of breast cancer, that's a risk factor for an individual. And maybe that's because there's a genetic mutation in that family that we have not defined. We don't know, you know, it's beyond the scope of our knowledge, potentially, you know, as to why this family, for example, might be developing breast cancer. Outside of that, in terms of breast cancer risk, there are some things that are known to place an individual at risk for breast cancer. I think with with Auburn, though, I think the honest answer is we don't know. (laughs) We don't know why you develop breast cancer. and, And that's frustrating, I think, for a lot of patients. But I think standard risk factors that we know about for breast cancer, in addition to family history, We know that postmenopausal use of combined hormone replacement therapy. So specifically, if women are postmenopausal and taking combined estrogen and progesterone, that can lead to an increased risk of developing breast cancer. What's interesting is the Women's Health Initiative, which is this big study that was started back east at Harvard, actually, years ago, was undertaken to look at risks for breast cancer, including hormone replacement therapy. And a recent update in December 2020 was presented at San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which is like the big annual meeting for all the the stars of breast cancer. I call it breast cancer Hollywood for me. (laughs) But they did an update. This study showed that estrogen use by itself 
in women who had a hysterectomy did not predispose to developing breast cancer, which is interesting. And so that leaves that as an option for women who are struggling with postmenopausal side effects. For example, estrogen use by itself does not lead to an increased risk of breast cancer. In fact, they saw a, a trend towards a decreased incidence of breast cancer in those women, which is very interesting. That's kind of the biggest risk factor that we think about and that we see in clinical practice. Otherwise, in terms of other things that have been linked to breast cancer, elevated body mass index or BMI, as we call it, obesity has been linked to postmenopausal breast cancer, not to premenopausal breast cancer. And then alcohol use has a linear association with breast cancer incidence. So essentially, the more a woman drinks over her lifetime, the higher risk of developing breast cancer. Other than that, kind of the classic known risk factors would be early age of menarche or first period, late menopause. So essentially, there's a longer overall exposure of, of two hormones during a, a woman's lifetime. Nulliparity is a risk factor for breast cancer. Those are kind of the, the biggest ones that we know of. What is nulliparity? Oh, I, sorry. Never having had children. It's but, increased or decreased risk? So... So good question. So nulliparity, meaning not having children, can mm -hmm. increase a woman's risk. However, that risk, if a woman has their first child after 35, that is also a risk for breast cancer. So that studies are now showing that later age of pregnancy can increase risk of developing breast cancer as well. Interesting. Kind of speaking about the genetic counseling that was an interesting experience for me because I am so young. So at first, when I went into that counseling appointment, I was ho not hoping, but wondering like, man, I wonder if I do have a genetic component that would make sense of all this. But then when I learned about the various mutations and how they can be associated with other types of cancer, I felt a sense of relief. So I have no genetic component or what we found, you know, there may be things that we don't know about, but I did feel a little bit of relief when I found that out because, you know, that can change your course of treatment based on if you do have those various mutations like the BRCA genes and things like that. And so, and the Breast Care Center offers a wonderful service. So um, I feel like I'm their spokesperson today <laughs> um, that if I did have a genetic predisposition uh, or a mutation that they would offer that genetic counseling for my family as well. So to help them with any sort of preventative measures that they needed. And so that helped me feel a little bit there was that sense of, oh, wait, if I have that mutation, that means, you know, my sisters, I have two sisters or my mom, you know, those worries came up too. So um, that was a really nice thing that they offered. Yeah. And I didn't actually address the second part of your question, Susie, about what Arvin has brought up, the BRCA mutation. And so there's these known mutations in the BRCA1 and 2 genes that can lead to um, increased lifetime risk for breast cancer. And they're also associated with an increased risk of developing ovarian cancer, as well as risk for pancreatic and prostate cancer. And so I could see where you would feel some peace of mind in that sense of not having that. Because typically with one of those syndromes, we do recommend that women have their ovaries removed after they're done with childbearing. So that's the current guideline is to proceed with that because the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is quite elevated with either syndrome and there's no real adequate or good screening test for ovarian cancer. So that is part of the treatment for women who have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation is having what we call 
bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. It's a lot of words for mm-hmm. your ovaries removed. Fortunately, that can be done laparoscopically nowadays, so it's not as invasive. But And then there are other uh, genetic mutations that we screen for in this. We do these panels, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, these gene panels that have been associated with uh, breast cancer. And so when we test for those, some of those can also be associated with different types of cancer in addition to breast cancer. But as a general rule, once in the absence of having one of these genetic mutations, once a woman has had breast cancer, it doesn't mean that she is personally at risk uh, for developing another cancer. So that's, I think, important. I think a lot of patients ask me that, does this mean I'm going to develop ovarian cancer or lung cancer? Or the answer is no. But I think what sometimes can be confusing is my treatments as a medical oncologist, including chemotherapy, the hormone blocking, or what we call endocrine therapy, are aimed at preventing breast cancer from coming back during a woman's lifetime anywhere in her body, because breast cancer rarely can reoccur at a different site. It's still breast cancer, but it can recur like in the liver, lung, bone. And so that's what our therapies are aimed at preventing. I don't think I realized that even if the cancer moved, it was still considered the same cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I wanted to bring that up because I think it's, it's, it's a complicated concept, right? And it's really the cornerstone of my job is, you know, I see myself as what I tell a lot of my patients is I see myself as the whole body doctor. So as the medical oncologist, my job is to come up with the best plan to prevent this cancer from coming back anywhere in your body during your lifetime. And so we want to come up with a plan that works, but also has the least side effects. And if a woman's having side effects that we're managing them, that we're addressing them, Because sometimes like with Auburn, she'll be on this hormone blocking therapy anywhere from five to 10 years is the current guideline. So minimum of five, maximum of 10. Part of what I love about my job is I get to have these longer term relationships with my patients because we're seeing each other for for all these years. Auburn, how far along are you in treatment or post-treatment? Where are you at in all this? I'm trying to think. I think this August I was two years out from my surgery. So I kind of consider that my cancer-free day. So I'm, I tell myself like I'm about two years cancer-free, which is exciting for me. So I've been doing, I think we started some of the endocrine therapy before surgery. So I've been doing a, that roughly for two years as well. I finished chemo a little over two years ago or the, and then the immunotherapy was a little bit after that. So got my first haircut a few weeks ago. It was very exciting because <laughs> I have hair to cut now. <laughs> so that was really nice. It's a very cute haircut. Thanks. I really like it. Thanks. It was kind of a mullet for a while. <laughs> my best friend's a hairstylist. So I was like, can you do something with this? <laughs> yeah. You look beautiful. Thanks. Thanks. So, and it's interesting you were saying about like the whole body wellness, Nicole, because that is something that's changed or at least improved for me in my life is just kind of considering that whole body. So something her and I've talked about at length in our appointments too of, you know, endocrine therapy has made it really difficult for me to lose weight, which I have to kind of come to terms with. I can, but I can still exercise regularly because that means that I have like heart health and I'm working on the other things that I'm predisposed of because of my genetics, my family genes, but just eating better and reducing risk in other ways and just checking in with how I'm feeling, not necessarily how 
I look or what I wear. Um, and that's made a huge difference. It's really made me think about my health in a different way. And that's partially because the language that they use at the breast care center, but then just knowing my body's been through a lot. And so I can be grateful for where it's at right now and just try to take care of it as best I can, whether that's physically or mentally. Um, it's kind of a whole picture thing now. You know, I was going to ask you how you cope or how do you <laughs> take care of yourself? And it sounds like mm. you have some pretty great routines, but if yeah. you wanted to elaborate. I mean, I'm going to be a huge proponent for therapy. Nicole knows that because I'm a therapist. And that was just a huge game changer for me in terms of going through treatment, after treatment, all of those things. You know, there was a period of time where I couldn't talk about the day that I was diagnosed without just bursting into tears because it was just such a hard day. And so, and therapy just meeting with my therapist and talking with her and doing specific, specific therapy to kind of help cope with that and like downregulate just that, that activated response, really. It helped me so much through treatment because, you know, the more I've learned now that I've kind of been learning more about providing therapy for that community is that deciding on treatment is so much harder when you're in an anxiety state. You know, you want to be as aware and present as possible, but when you have things that are happening that are related to life and death and, and things like that can be really overwhelming. And so I'm very grateful that I did take the time for my mental health because I feel like I could be present for those really important conversations with my doctors or with my family and be okay, you know, now looking back two years later and be like, I'm very happy with all the treatment choices I made. And I'm not looking back on that experience and feeling just totally overwhelmed. I'm like, okay, this happened, but now I'm on the other side and I'm doing well. You know, I feel like I'm so much better off because I did take that time for that kind of that whole body wellness. Yeah, I would agree. I think mental health is a big fan. Yeah, yeah. We're all big fan of mental health. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And it's an emerging field in like cancer related. There's a lot of people supporting that. And so I know it's really overwhelming to think about when you're going through treatment as well. I think I just automatically went to therapy because I am a therapist and I know how helpful it can be in that mind-body connection and just resiliency and treatment, but I can completely understand going through treatment and just thinking like, I don't want to go to another appointment. You know, I don't want to talk about all the terrible that's happening in my life. That's completely normal too. So I think it's okay to just do what you need to do through treatment. That was just what I needed. I actually find it really incredible that you are a therapist and you also saw value in your own work, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I sometimes feel like that's the opposite. You see people who are in the profession. Mm -hmm who are like, well, that, that's me. I don't have to go see myself, right? Like they yeah. kind of like dismiss. Yeah, I pretty much did that before like... treatment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, and then I started going and it was just so nice to have a place to, that I was talking to someone that didn't know me at all, that didn't see me going through treatment, that didn't have to sit in those appointments with me. They were just there to be like, let's talk about it. And so I think it was really helpful for my family and friends too. So I didn't have to just unload on them all the time. And I could have a space where I could just really be a mess and cry. And then I'd be like, Oh, I feel so much better. Okay. Now I can kind of function. So that was very important for me. In your experience, what was the most supportive thing that your family and friends could do for you? That was an interesting one. Cause I think that probably the most helpful thing was just knowing that they were there to help. A lot of times I didn't know what I needed. So if somebody just said like, if you need anything, just let me know. So if it did come up, I, I could call someone and be like, Hey, I thought I was going to be able to go out today and get groceries. And I really can't. Can you please help me with that? Or just like family coming over and helping me clean the house or something, you know, just little things, not these big grand gestures, but just kind of being there. So if I did need them, that was really helpful. 
and positive self-talk that really made a difference for me. I recall, and I still say these things to myself. I, if I was having a particularly hard day, I didn't feel well, but I knew walking would usually make me feel a little bit better. Moving my body was really helpful, even if it was just a short walk, because I didn't want to exert myself too much. And I would just say, I'm strong, I'm resilient, I can do this. And I just kept saying that over and over while I was walking my dogs, even if it was just like down the block and back and then I'd go home and get back in bed. But just that attitude really helped me get through things when I didn't want to go to my chemo treatment. So I was like, oh, I don't want to feel bad again. I would tell myself that and then we'd get through it. And because of that, I was able to complete all the treatment that we determined and I was able to have a really good response too. Incredible. Anything else you want to share? I guess just to add to the discussion about mental health, you know, I think Auburn was so in touch with her mental health, I think because of her background and education and her job. And it really, I can't underscore the importance of that. I think as I watched her kind of walk through this journey and that resilience, you know, I could see that every time that I saw her. And I think it really does impact your care. And you had a great outcome. And I think part of that's a testament to you and your strength. And certainly people can try as hard as they can. Sometimes things don't wind up the way we want them to. But I think that we're understanding that more and more about the need for good support for our patients, both during their cancer treatments and that journey. And then after the treatments are over too, I think having that support is also that ongoing mental health aspect is still really important. And we have a cancer psychiatrist at our cancer center, Dr. Scott Nichols, who's been immensely helpful to a lot of my patients. And I think just being aware of that, I'll often, you know, offer referrals early on in treatment. So people do feel that support. And I think Auburn herself is kind of undertaking this goal to support other breast cancer survivors in our community and offering um, her services in that regard. And so I think that's a wonderful thing, both having that personal touch, you know, having gone through it herself, and then just offering that support to women in our community is so important. So how does somebody get access to the Enlo Comprehensive Breast Care? So really, anyone can be referred to Enlo Comprehensive Breast Care. It really is once you have that breast cancer diagnosis, an individual can either self-refer or ask their primary doctor, you know, sometimes it's dependent on the type of insurance if an individual can self-refer or not, but regardless, they can self-refer and we can help them navigate that process. We have our new patient nurse navigator, Mariah Crew, who's also my chemotherapy nurse and a wonderful individual, but she, you know, will help walk patients through that process once they have that diagnosis of breast cancer about what they need to do to get hooked in. So really anyone can be referred either themselves or by their primary physician, their gynecologist. Thank you both. Again, honestly, Auburn, I am completely inspired <laughs> and motivated by you. I just think you're such an amazing person and thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks. I know that this will change lives mm -hmm. and I'm really thankful for you to be here and share yeah. that with us. You're strong, you're resilient and you can do this. You can do this. And I think that's something to take home from that. I do want to thank you both so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Remember that no one knows your breasts better than you do. And we learned that today through Auburn's story. Be sure to do regular self-exams and ask your provider when you should start having mammograms if you aren't having them already. Early detection is the best protection, and it can help you thrive after breast cancer. If you're facing this cancer or any other, know that you're not alone. Talk to your care team, your loved ones, or reach out to Enlo's Cancer Care Team at www.enlo.org cancer.
They can help you find the strength, resources, and so much more. We hope you found this episode helpful. Tell us what matters to you. Shoot us an email at health.matters at inlo.org. Let us know your thoughts about our podcast and what you want us to explore. We'd love to hear from you. And remember Auburn's words, you're strong, you're resilient, and you can do it. Take care. If you like what you heard today, please give us a thumbs up, subscribe, and share. The story you share just may save a life. Thanks again for getting real with us today and listening to Health Matters.